Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to The Economist Asks. And today we're asking is it game over for Theresa May? What the general election earlier this year showed is that 40 years later, for too many people in our country, that dream feels distant. Our party's ability to deliver it is in question. And the British dream that has inspired generations of Britons feels increasingly out of reach. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and with me is Adrian Waldridge, our budget columnist. And this was what our week sounded like. I'm backstage here at the Conservative Party conference. We're waiting for the Prime Minister to take the stage. It's probably one of the most difficult speeches she's ever given. She won the general election, but she lost that precious Tory majority. The conference needs to hear from her what she can do to change. A little over 40 years ago, in a small village in Oxfordshire, I signed up to be a member of the Conservative Party. I did it because it was the party that had the ideas to build a better Britain. But has Theresa May managed to do that in her year and three months in office? In her speech, she conceded that the party wasn't ready when she called a snap general election back in June. And the Tories lost their majority, despite a strong lead in the opinion polls. That failure forced her to strike a pact with the Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party, resulting in a working majority of just 13. Well, the Prime Minister gave a wholehearted apology for her role in that debacle. We did not get the victory we wanted because our national campaign fell short. It was too scripted, too presidential, and it allowed the Labour Party to paint us as the voice of continuity when the public wanted to hear a message of change. I hold my hands up for that. I take responsibility. I led the campaign and I am sorry. Theresa May apologising there publicly, fully for the first time for that election result. Big gulp of water before she goes on. So, Adrian, there I was grabbing the the sorry moment. Do you think she understood what went wrong in the election and did she approach it the right way? I think she started out very well by saying sorry, by acknowledging that the campaign had been a real mess and by taking responsibility for that mess. So a good start. Well, I wondered whether in a way it was neither long nor short enough. She said from the heart, I'm sorry. She didn't try to lay off blame on anyone else. Fair enough. Then she said the campaign was too presidential. And to me, that sort of raised the issue that presidential campaigns seem to work perfectly well for David Cameron or Tony Blair. So it almost seemed to highlight her weakness without her explaining it. Well, I think to explain her weakness would be rather embarrassing for her. I mean, basically, she left uh, unsaid the great problem with the campaign was that she was, wasn't up to the job. And I think everybody understood that. And I like the fact that she said sorry to the campaigners, the workers in the room, the people who'd given their, their lives to the party. I wish she'd stuck on the theme of being sorry and said more to the people who actually lost their seats or weren't elected in that. 
And it wasn't going to be Teresa's day. A prankster handed her a P45, the form used to terminate employment in Britain. He cheekily claimed it was from Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, but Theresa May bounced back quite well. I was, a, I was about to talk about somebody I'd like to give a P45 to, and that's Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. She'd already had unscheduled interruptions from her Foreign Secretary and possibly a pretender to her crown in Boris Johnson. Bojo wasn't underselling Britain after Brexit, and he certainly wasn't underselling himself. We are not the lion. We do not claim, like some others, to be the lion. That role is played by the people of this country. But it is up to us now, in the traditional, non-threatening and genial, self-deprecating way of the British, to let that lion roar. Thank you very much. Did the lion roar for you, Adrian? Not at all. I think this was an extremely badly constructed, uh, self-indulgent speech that he made. It read like one of his telegraph, one of his worst telegraph columns. Actually, it was full of uh, rhetorical pirouettes, but it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, secondly, more importantly, this is, was not Boris Johnson's conference. The number of people. MPs and political activists who came up to me from both sides of the divide, pro-Brexit and anti-Brexit, who said, I've had enough of Boris Johnson. He's doing the party a huge amount of harm. So I think he's a fading star. And the line about the dead bodies having to be cleared up in Libya before reconstruction could begin, that really did strike a false note. Well, what you have to understand is this man is Britain's chief diplomat and you couldn't be more undiplomatic than to start talking about dead bodies have to, having to be cleared away. I think this is a sort of general rule in, mm-hmm. in, in politics is in, on the evening after you've made your big speech, when you're pumped up with adrenaline, don't go and make an impromptu speech to a group of supporters afterwards. Go to bed. Go to bed. Have a couple of drinks and say absolutely nothing. That doesn't come lightly to Boris. Well, alas, there wasn't much of a roar at all from Theresa May. On top of her vociferous cabinet and rogue protesters, the Prime Minister was losing her voice. Why, <coughs> why we will never... <coughs> excuse me. But not to worry, because Philip Hammond, her Chancellor, was at hand to give her a cough suite. I, I hope you notice that, ladies and gentlemen, the Chancellor giving something away free. <laughs> But another gremlin was in the wings and letters on the stage started falling off the conference set in full view of the cameras. And strength that was shared around the globe. Perhaps the only person not to notice was Theresa May. It said that this is modern Britain. So Adrian and I are safely back from the Faulty Towers Tory conference in our impeccably constructed studio. It does make you think that when things go right, Adrian, it's more of an exception than a rule, isn't it? Absolutely. It was quite extraordinary. And the things that went wrong seemed to reinforce each other. So I think one reason why all the letters fell off is that the members of the the audience were clapping so hard that it actually sort of created a a sort of mini earthquake. And so everything they did to try and save her seemed to make things worse. I was sitting with a lot of actors 
activists. They were very loyal. I think they were, I could hear the odd groan around me, but it was a sympathetic groan. I think they were applauding to carry her, weren't they? There was a sense Absolutely. that she, she was being carried by the audience, not the other way around. Absolutely. Look, it was impossible to watch this poor woman um, stand up and get a frog in her throat and keep coughing and not feel huge sympathy. Anybody who's ever done any public speaking, that's your biggest nightmare. So I think everybody felt sorry for her. But is it good enough to feel sorry for somebody so prominent? You know, pity isn't really a good guide, is it, to, to the job? I think there's something else as well, Adrian. Having covered these for a, a lot of years, you, you get into the rhythm of how prime ministers approach them. And David Cameron, Tony Blair, they took a lot of time out the day before. They were happy to trust their teams to go out glad hand and tweak the scripts. And there's a very funny line, I think, about Tony Blair just saying, I can't bear this anymore. I can't you know, bear my own speech. I'm going to bed. And that's the right way to do it. But her voice was very strained because she was trying to please too many many people possibly a sign of her desperation or that she just feels she needs to reconnect with the party and she's overdoing it. It's a sign of her desperation. It's also her sign of her work ethic, that she thinks that the solution to all problems is to work harder. Sometimes it's not to work harder. Sometimes it's to relax. Sometimes it's to give your voice a rest. Her solution is always to work. She needs to do a bit more thinking, a bit more relaxing and a little bit less sort of burning the midnight oil. Now, boxer on Animal Farm and look what happened to him. Exactly. Huh? Now, apart from the voice, it is a bit like putting aside a slight calamity in terms of the presentation, but you've been dealing with the detail in what you're writing. Do you think that she found her political voice, even if her physical one failed? Absolutely not. I think the interesting thing about this speech, it was not only a debacle in terms of its presentation, but it was also an extremely weak speech in terms of its content. It had no real theme it had no. Um, it had lots of detail that was unnecessary to the overall argument. And the big announcement that she made, which is that she wants to build a lot of council houses. Actually, if you look at the detail, it's about 25,000 council houses a year. So what she keeps doing, as she did with student fees, as she's now done with council houses, is to say, look, we have a big, big problem here. And here's a really little solution. The speech that I really admired at this conference actually was Philip Hammond's. I think he got it exactly right. And she did. Mm, some people thought it was too depressing and Eeyore-ish on Brexit, particularly, huh? I think that is. We have a cabinet that straddles differences of opinion on Brexit, but I, you know, I think you 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 do have a point here. And the whole thing was to end with a, a positive note with her speech, you know. And I didn't think the positive side was enough. It's just not good enough. <laughs> just not good enough. But sitting there listening to it, I thought. This is a robust defence of liberal conservatism. Uh, Economists, a great liberal paper. We can't surely be against a prime minister who shone a light on racial injustice. She didn't sound shy about it, and sometimes conservatives do. They sound as if they're borrowing language from the left when they talk about uh, inequality or anti-slavery campaign. She really put her own marker on that showing that she's not narrow-minded, but also showing that she's prepared to take on those big, rather worthy subjects more associated with the left of centre. Yes, I think she wanted to sort of brand herself or present herself as a worthy, hard-working person who is dealing with the problems that confront the country. Um, you know, you can vote for Corbyn if you want sort of to emote about them, but vote for me if you actually want to deal with them. That's not a, ba- uh, that's not a bad thing to be trying to do from, from her point of view. Brexit was, of course, the subject dominating this conference. It was all pretty much all that was talked about uh, in the fringes and uh, on the side. She hasn't firmly committed to either of the two camps that divide the Conservative Party. That's Philip Hammond on the one side saying, take it very, very slowly and perhaps never, ever get there. And Boris Johnson saying, two years, and if we're not 
gone by then, then we have betrayed those who voted leave. Was there any clarity that you got out of spending this week in Manchester? Well, the only clarity I got was the was the absolute conviction now that there is a group of people on the pro-Brexit side led by people like John Redwood and uh, Rhys Mogg who are really quite crazy on this subject now, who will do anything to push this forward and will sacrifice themselves and their party if there's any compromise on this issue. They're in a frenzy, these people. They think we should leave tomorrow. They think the EU owes us money rather than us owing them money. And they have huge support. So they were getting hundreds and hundreds of people to turn up. That was what I was interested in because I was about to mutter in that annoying way. Well, you know, I started writing political columns over two decades ago and John Redwood and Co... Rhys Mogg, I suppose, was was uh, still too young to be involved then. But there was always that hardcore of strong Eurosceptic sentiment. What's changed now? Is the referendum has changed everything or just that the group of people who turn up at these events likes that kind of speaker? I think both of those is true. But the number of people who turn up to those, those events who think who are absolutely convinced that Europe is a disaster debacle. We must escape from it. That's where all the energy is. And I noticed something very strange happening uh, over Brexit, that the the redwoods uh, of this world increasingly almost uh, passionate, let me use the word, the polite word passionate about this subject. Their supporters are very passionate, very large numbers of them. But the professional politicians who've seen the future of the party in Brexit, these are middle-ranking people who've said Brexit is our thing, getting very, very nervous about Brexit. These are people whose life lies in politics, who want to be in politics for the next 20 years, and they're not seeing it as a as an issue that's really working out very well for them. Well, another issue the Tories face is a decline in young voters. In Margaret Thatcher's time, the Conservatives were more popular than Labour among the 18 to 24-year-old demographic. In 2010, it was pretty much neck and neck. Now the average Tory voter is approaching 60 and the average member of the party is around 57. Age, not class, looks like the new dividing line. So might it be why Mrs May has a few policies up her sleeve to win back those young voters? Callum Williams, our Britain economic economics correspondent has popped into the studio. Hello, Callum. Hello. So you've been delving into this and the first proposal was to freeze university tuition fees. What implications would that have? Well, in the short term, it doesn't mean all too much. It will be about £9,000 or thereabout for tuition per year for the next cohort of students. So in the short term, it's things have really stayed as they are. The effects will be felt over the long term and that's to do with inflation. So what it means is as inflation erodes the purchasing value of that £9,000, universities are going to get less income. And of course, it's going to take a fairly brave minister to say, let's unfreeze that freeze, increase fees to 10000 11000 and so on. What this essentially means is that universities are going to lose mm. out on money. The interesting thing about it is that the students benefit less from this than you'd think. Why is that? Because the vast majority of students are not going to pay back their student loans. So really, this affects the kind of roughly 20%. It's a bit complicated, but it affects, it benefits the 20% of students that do pay back their loans because now they're paying back less. But everyone else is left unaffected. 
I like the it's a bit complicated. <laughs> it's very good when you preface it with that because then any of us who are having difficulty right. following know that we need to read your piece properly to, to get into the details and then all will be crystal clear. So the second thing is a bit complicated but very important I think to Theresa May's offer to the young is helping those who can't get on the housing ladder to yeah. have a better start there. Yeah. Did she come up with anything that impressed you? I'm making you into our millennial spokesman today. What did you think? Uh, sort of. I mean there's two things. There's a, there's a big boost for a help-to-buy scheme. So that's $10 billion extra towards that. And then there's a $2 billion boost for building more affordable housing. Um, so taking the help-to-buy thing first, what this program basically does is the government gives you a deposit, in effect, or lends you a deposit. So it makes it easier to buy a house. Now, I think it has benefited some people. Some people have been able to buy whereas before they weren't able to. But I think the biggest effect of Help to Buy has been to to push up house prices. Anything else for young voters that we, we missed? Well, the second thing is the affordable housing budget, which um, Theresa May and her team uh, briefed the newspapers the day before the conference speech, essentially saying this was going to be a Macmillan-style revolution in council house building and social housing and all this kind of stuff. And actually what was proposed was a very small increase in a budget that has fallen very significantly in recent years. So we're talking about perhaps an extra 5,000 extra affordable, in inverted commas, houses that will be built. And, you know, the estimates that have been made by economists are roughly in the region of 300,000 extra homes that we need per year. So it's a drop in the ocean. Adrian, good policy or just a bribe? Well, they have to be seen to be addressing this policy. But the problem is that they seem to be addressing it in a way that is both too little and too inflationary. It seems that they're not doing enough and what they are doing is actually adding to the problem in the long-term problem, which is the huge price of houses. Uh, Callum, you write a lot in this territory, and very interestingly. If we, let's make you for you know, half a minute minister for the younger voters. What would, what would you do? What would I do? I think the housing thing is very, very important, but the solutions to it are not that easy. I mean, the, I mean, the solution is to allow house building to increase. To address that requires all sorts of things, from changing the planning system to changing the tax code and all this kind of stuff. So the problem is that the problems they face are quite intractable and and, and have very, very big solutions. So I recommend that. What do we want? Changes to the tax code. When do we want it? Now. We've got it. We've got it all sorted here. So Theresa May said goodbye to Manchester and the question hanging in the air was, should she stay or should she go as Conservative leader and, and thus as Prime Minister? Adrian? I think when people are prime ministers and people start pitying them and making excuses for them, they've lost their authority. I think it's time to um, think of a replacement, time for her to go. I actually believe that Philip Hammond would be a good replacement. I know he's a bit dull. I know he's a bit straight-laced, but I think he's the perfect caretaker to see us through Brexit, keep the cabinet in order and prepare for the transition which I urge to the next generation of very talented Tories that they have in, in, in the party. Well, I nearly fainted dead away when you made that made that suggestion. I think Philip Hammond does a basically competent job as Chancellor. I think he holds back a lot of the, the less good side of the Brexit stuff in, in Cabinet. But, you know, he he's not looked very convincing in the round as Chancellor. I think he's still finding his feet and I think his personality, that very reserved personality, is a bit more uh, fun when he's, so to speak, off record, but the voters don't know that. I I just think that was you would put put Philip Hammond up against the Corbyn machine, really? Well, I I would say that I wouldn't be putting up against the Corbyn machine in the long term. I think we need a two-year sort of transition process to prepare for the next generation, the next generation. You want to change leaders twice? um, 
I'm afraid I think I don't want to do that. I'm afraid it may well be necessary because I'm not sure that we can go on as we're going on at the moment. The Conservative Party has one big um, thing on its side. It has an extremely good uh, collection of people who were taken in in 2010 and 2015, a very good rank of, uh, collection of middle-ranking people in the party. So uh, not a very good uh, cabinet and uh, a very unimpressive prime minister. But below that, a lot of very good people. So I can see them going to the next election against the Corbyn machine, completely revivified. I would have Ruth Davidson at the top, but I'd also bring lots of younger people into the cabinet. Now, you say that this, you know, to change uh, in mid horses in midstream, well, the, the world changes very fast at the moment. They've been in office for a long time. What they need is change. Stability, not a good thing. Well, Adrian and I are putting away our political anoraks for the conference season, and all that's left for me to say is... Get me out of here. I'm Anne McElvoy. Thank you very much for listening. In London, this is The Economist. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.